You're listening to Right Where You Are, hosted by New York Times bestselling author, creator, and speaker, Jason Wright. With inspiring guest interviews and Jason's unique lens on life, this is the place to see the good in the world, to lift and be lifted, no matter your starting point, to make a difference that matters. And we'll do it all together, right where you are. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Right Where You Are. This is Jason Wright, of course. And thank you for joining us. I probably don't thank you enough for making time every week. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, If you are listening to this episode on the day that it drops, well, we are less than two weeks from the official release of Even the Dog Knows. I'm super excited about it. I've been talking about it, of course, here on the show lately with a little more frequency because we have had some guests that have a tie either to the book or to the theme. And we have another one of those guests today. By the way, I have heard that some uh, customers, uh, particularly on Amazon, have received or are receiving their books a little bit early. So if you are one of those that gets your book, particularly from Amazon, before uh, the March 8th official release date. I would love to know. So message me on social media uh, or post about it. Uh, If you haven't, of course, you can pick up the book at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, your indie local bookstore can get it um, anywhere you buy books, you will find even the dog knows. Okay. Today's guest is the perfect perfect guest to celebrate this final countdown uh, to the release of this novel. She is um, a, a dog trainer and the author of what just might be my favorite book of 2021. It's called Stella. And she will tell us a little bit about Stella in a minute. And you will know instantly why I loved the book so much and why she's on the show today. Um, She's also got what has got to be the very best job on the planet. I mean, if I could just wave a magic wand and be a middle school librarian, that's what I would do. I absolutely love that she is a librarian. And perhaps most importantly, today's guests uh, like me and like uh, Kirby Hayborn, who was on last week, and Jenny Sasser, who was on the week before, well, she believes that dogs do, in fact, have this really unique ability to bring hope and comfort and healing when we need it most. I think she would agree that dogs just know things. And hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Her name, of course, friends, is McCall Hoyle. McCall, how are you? I'm great, Jason. Thank you for having me. Hello, podcast listeners. Oh, I'm so glad. So I won't, we won't (laughs) tell the audience the whole long sorted tale, but if you had told me an hour and a half ago, (laughs) we would be (laughs) chatting on the show this week. I would have said you're not. So, uh, and I told you before we began recording that um, it, it's, I don't always have an opportunity to be as familiar with someone's work, um, whether it's an actor or a writer or whatever. Um, but I, I did read every beautiful, loving, um, well-crafted wordsmithed word of Stella. Um, shout out to Chris Schobinger, an editor we share at Shadow Mountain, who made me aware of the book last year. And I'll say before we get too, too far into our discussion that um, as I was going through the process of editing my novel, which about every three or four chapters is told from the viewpoint um, of Moses, the black lab, the family dog, he would say to me either by email or text or Zoom, so this is good, but look at what McCall did with Stella here <laughs> and here and here so that we weren't creating this world where the dog was some magician that just 
you know, knew more than I could possibly know, but that it did sense some things. So he was so complimentary of your writing and the way you crafted this, this beautiful character, this beautiful dog. So um, where do you want to start? Because I, I kind of want to know how you balance. Well, first of all, you're a middle school librarian. I loved my middle school librarian. All the way until the day that I got in trouble because I went into the library with some masking tape and I covered up an, an author's name at the bottom of the book and I wrote Jason F. Wright in just this nasty, horrible handwriting. But I did it because I wanted to see what my name would look like on the front of a book. And my librarian at Leslie H. Walton Middle School in Albemarle County, Virginia, when we took the tape off, it ripped the jacket. And um, she was not, she was not very happy with me, but but for like five minutes, I, I had this opportunity to see like what my name would look like on the front of a book. So a um, big shout out to you for doing what I think is, is really important work. Maybe some of the most important work anyone can do um, is helping young people learn to love to read. So talk a little bit about your journey, how you end up from a library to training dogs, to writing my favorite book of last year. <laughs> well, Jason, I was not always a teacher. I worked in business. I was an investment counselor and did some other things, but I always wanted to teach. My husband's a teacher. Many of our friends are teachers, but everybody kept telling me, oh, you won't make a lot of money. You, you know, this will be awful. That'll be awful. My dad died unexpectedly when I was 30 years old, and I decided that life was too short to not do what you absolutely love and that no amount of money um, was worth doing something that you didn't absolutely love. So at about 30, I went back to school. I changed careers. I started teaching English. I have never regretted that decision. I know too. I'm sorry to all the people with other jobs. I know I have the best job on the face of the planet. Um, and uh, the reason I know that is because when I go to school every day, just like everybody else, I wake up tired in the morning. There are days I might not really want to go to school. But when I get there and have the first interaction with an adolescent kid, I feel energy from that. Um, so I do know I have a great job. I'm not officially a dog trainer. I'm a wannabe dog trainer. Um, I have taken lots and lots of classes and I own two dogs that have lots of titles on them, but I really just train my own dogs, not what other kind of titles dogs. like king, queen, sir. Uh, exactly. They, I like you. You, Yes, they are absolutely king and queen. No, <laughs> um, trick dog titles. They can do oh. all kinds of silly things like spin and trot backwards and jump over things. They have trick dog titles. We've done a little bit of agility. We have some obedience titles. Um, so when you say you're not a dog trainer, <laughs> who trained the dogs? Instagram? Well, I, I trained them, but under the tutelage or the teaching of someone else. Mm. Um, so I don't get paid. I'm not a, I don't get paid to train dogs, mm. but my dogs are pretty awesome. I have a two and a half year old golden tree, golden retriever. Her name is Apple. And she is sort of like the gifted kid who cannot sit still. She has to be constantly doing something new. Mm. And then I have a little three-year-old 
border terrier, which most people have never heard of. Um, and she would rather sleep all day. And she's my sort of cuddle dog. Um, and as an, a, an English teacher, I'm talking a lot, but you asked about the three different things. How did I get into the writing as well? Well, as an Eng- as a language arts teacher, an English teacher, um, I had to teach kids how to write. And I have found, if there are any other teachers listening to the podcast, teachers are taught to do a lot of things. But one of the things that we're not really taught much about is how to teach writing. We're taught how to assess writing. We're taught what kind of assignments to give to students, but we're not really taught how to teach them to write when they get stuck. Hmm. So my first year teaching, I decided everything I had my kids write, I was going to write with them. And one year I had this genius idea. We were going to do National Novel Writing Month with eighth mm, graders. Mm, yes, that hey. was <laughs> that was a bold movement, um, but it was beautiful. And I wrote a horrible book that I would never share with anyone. It was so badly written, but it, I got the bug. And like you, I went to the bookstore and I found out where my books would be on the shelf mm-hmm. if I ever actually published a book. And here I am doing what I love, working with kids, writing books and selling books in the library, selling kids on reading. So when you, because I, I remember seeing my book on a shelf, um, both in a, I wrote most of my first novel actually wrote in a, in a public library when we were still living in the DC suburbs. And I went back into that library after the book um, had released and it had been a, a couple of months. And I found the book in the library where I wrote the book. And it was a really, it was almost an overwhelming emotional experience to see it. Is it, I mean, you're in a library where young people come in to talk about reading in books and get a recommendation from their, their lovely librarian. Do, do you not see your book on the shelf and go, that's, that's my book. I wrote that. <laughs> Actually, Jason, we're just getting to know each other. I'm um, probably like humble and modest to a fault. Um, You know, like I won't take credit for training my own dogs. I'll say to the kids sometimes, well, because they'll ask, oh, Miss Hoyle, I love dog books or I love the dog's purpose or what. And I'll say to them, well, you know, I wrote a little dog book, you know, and they're like, you wrote it. And and then to take them over to the bookshelf and... uh, they say, you really wrote this? Yes, That's I cool. really wrote this. And you could do this too. That was my big um, emotional moment. Yours was seeing your book in the library where you wrote it. Mine was when a student of mine posted on Facebook a picture of herself with my book. She got it early on Amazon oh, wow. before the actual release date. Mm. And the reason it was so emotional is because I had done National Novel Writing Month with these kids. They had been through all the ups and downs of trying to find an agent with me. You know, I shared every one of the 200 rejections that I got with them. And, you know, they went. And and so years and years and years of this. So when the kids saw that their 30 something year old teacher could do this thing that seemed so insurmountable, I think it gave them confidence and hope that they could accomplish their greatest um, dreams too. And that was very emotional. That's awesome. And yeah, you are, you are such a good human being because I'm sitting here thinking if I'm the librarian 
And I have just published a book. When my students walk through the doors of the library, they are going to be met with a strobe light, a smoke machine, maybe some spotlights, maybe like a shadow box. I don't know. Uh, But it would certainly be in the middle of the library on some kind of a little pedestal thing that like spins, like sound effect. Oh boy, you're a, you are you are definitely a more high quality human being. I don't know about that. Good for you, no, that's that's awesome. I I I love that story, and I can I can imagine that being in the library all day um, and having kids coming and going, and particularly with a book like this, which is, you know, I, we were talking before we began recording. My my books are you know it's it's adult contemporary fiction. I've written a couple of things for kids, but for the most part, I'm writing for your students' parents, right? So right. For you to be writing a, a book aimed at them about dogs with a dog on the cover, where the dog is the is really the lead, right? The protagonist mm-hmm. of the book. Um, I bet you get a lot of takers. I bet you get a lot of takers on that book. There's a waiting list for Stella in your library, isn't there? There might be there occasionally might be. a waiting list. I bet. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Tell me. Um, all right, you've spent a lot of time with dogs. You have. Um, allegedly trained dogs. Yes. They don't want to take credit for it. Um, my listeners know how much I, you know, I, I believe that um, I, I love all animals with great love and respect to all of the cat people out there and the snake people and the gerbil people and the horse people and the whatever. Uh, there is something about um, dogs and there's something about dog families. And I have had dogs in my life since I, I, I mean, I don't remember. I was, um, since I was a toddler, there's been a dog in and out of my life really. And I cannot tell you how many times in my life, uh, when I felt like I was a little bit invisible, it was the family dog that saw me and that came to me. My father also passed away, um, when I was 16 and, you know, that we had a couple of dogs at the time and they just knew that something was happening. So first I want to know what's your take on, is that true? Or are we simply, do we just give them too much credit because we like them or, or is there something to the sense that dogs know things? And then secondly, I want you to talk about Stella and I want you, perhaps um, the audience isn't familiar with the book. And by the time we're done, I want all of them putting this book in their shopping cart on Amazon. So go. Okay. Well, first of all, I have had dogs all of my life as well. Um, Animals, dogs, and horses in particular, and the occasional cat have always been my best friends. I love human beings. I love my family. I have a husband and children who I adore. But my best friends who have dogs just love so unconditionally and have so few expectations of us. And I have such high expectations for myself and put so much pressure on myself. It is so wonderful to just come home and decompress with an animal that just loves me the way I am. Um, I have read books about dog, not just fiction, but nonfiction. I do tremendous amounts of research. Um, One of the books that I love the most was called Inside of a Dog by Alexandra Horowitz. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that or your listeners are, 
but she really explains in great detail how dogs do know things. They just frequently know them in a different way than we do. They take in so much of their information through their nose, whereas we take take in so much of our information through our eyes. Hmm. Um, I I am not, again, a, a dog, an animal behaviorist. But I know that dogs know things. Um, One of my favorite quotations as a language arts literature teacher, um, are you familiar with Emily Dickinson's line, uh, dogs are better than humans because Mm -hmm. they know but do not tell? Mm -hmm. Um, I just, that resonates so deeply with me. Um, Stella, you also asked a little bit about Stella. Stella is really the story of my adult life, my young adult life, and I think the lives of so many other people. Stella's first job, she's a beagle for all the beagle lovers out there. Um, She was an explosive detection dog at the airport and she was very, very good at what she did. And she loved her best friend, her handler. And before the book opens, there was an accident at the airport, and Stella feels like she's responsible for that. Um, That might be something that I struggle with myself, taking responsibility for other people's mistakes. Um, And Stella has to learn, which I think is a really important lesson for all of us, that just because we make a bad mistake doesn't mean we're a bad person. Mm. As long as we learn from our mistakes and are constantly growing and and trying to change and improve. Um, And Stella is very interesting because she knows things and she knows things that are scientifically proven. So she befriends a little girl after she is rehomed after the accident um, at the airport. She befriends a little girl named Chloe. And Stella is the only one who realizes that the smells in Chloe's body precede what we as human beings would call seizures. Um, Stella perceives it just as the little girl that she loves is falling down and um, not alert. Um, There's just a tremendous body of evidence that shows dogs are capable of so much more than we ever even give them credit for. And a lot of it is because of their amazing noses. Well, a couple of things. The um, the way that accident is, first of all, this is a children's book, right? So that you could so deftly handle trauma. I mean, life altering trauma through the POV of a dog in a way that elementary school or what, what's the exact target? It's a, is it a, it's a middle reader? Yes. Th- grades three through six. And it goes a little, if dog lovers, re- I mean, parents love it too, if they love dogs, right. but the kind of target market is grades three through six, probably four through six, really, unless um, a kid's pretty emotionally mature and that sort it, of thing. It's just, it is so, that is so well portrayed in the book and um and there's a and i i don't want to give too much away but there are a couple of just beautiful beautiful moments where you you recognize um stella knows what death smells like Mm -hmm. and 
and it's slow through the book as you kind of put these pieces together, but oh my goodness. And so it's so, it's so well done. And um, I don't read um, I, just simply because of time, not interest. I don't read a lot of uh, books that would be, you know, early reader, middle grade books, but I am so, so glad that I read this one. Folks, if you, if you want to read a book where um, you're going to buy in to the premise and fall completely in love with Chloe and Stella and the other players and cheer for a dog. I mean, I don't remember reading a book where I was so openly cheering for the mental health (laughs) and emotional recovery of this dog. It's just, um, it's so well done. Uh, The book is Stella. I will of course link to it in the show notes and I will link to all of the good things uh, that McCall is doing. Um, But I, I implore you to pick up Stella. And by the way, I have heard that the book has done extraordinarily well. So congratulations for that. It is hard, particularly in that market, it is really hard to break through. So congratulations Mm -hmm. on writing a book that has been um, such a success and resonated with so many people. Thank you so much. All right. So um, I want to ask you this, and then we'll pivot to our last two questions. I want to know what you have learned about yourself from Stella or from your other books. We'll we'll link to, because I know you have a couple other titles out there that are very easy to find as well. What have you learned about yourself from writing? Um, Writing, you have to be a hopeful person if you really are going to... um, pursue writing as a career. Um, you have to be a hopeful person. And to me, it is, it is a lot for, for um, faith-based listeners. Writing a book is a lot like my own faith in a lot of ways. I am going in the dark a lot of times with a lot of questions that I am searching for the answers to, and somehow every time I think that I get to a roadblock that can't, um, an obstacle that can't be overcome or a question that can't be answered, um, if I just learn to trust and sort of listen um, to what's going on inside of me emotionally, all those plot things sort of work out. Um, I've learned that I'm tougher and braver and more persistent than I thought I was. I think take uh, being a, a published author and pursuing publication takes a lot of those kinds of character traits. But I just love writing stories that are going to make somebody feel something. And hopefully that feeling in all of my books, I didn't intend for them to be connected thematically. My other books are for older, um, young adults. Um, they always end up having a very, very hopeful element to them. Well, and that's, is a writer who um, you said that you went through this journey to find representation, you know, most of the people listening, I think have heard me talk about my struggle in, in finding my first agent and some of the, some of the rejection letters that I received. If, if you can't be hopeful through that process, then how can you be hopeful through through the writing itself, right? right. I, when I was young, I remember thinking, well, when I write, when I, when I grow up and become a writer, because that was kind of the third grade dream, mm-hmm. I'll just like live in my basement and eat little Debbie's and work in my bathrobe and write books and someone will publish it and they'll send me money, right? Isn't that how it works? Right, and exactly. <laughs> you realize there's a little bit more, 
to it. And, and one of the things is really is yeah, connecting with agents and and publishers and editors and readers. And a lot of what we do doesn't have anything to do with actually putting words on paper or on screen. But there is there is some power to taking the hope that kind of threads its way through all of our relationships and then hoping that it affects our writing. I sometimes read really important books, the books that are sometimes dominating news coverage or that win book of the year awards. Mm -hmm. And I know that they're, I know that it's good literature, but I don't read them and feel hopeful. Like I don't, some of these books don't inspire me to want to be a little bit better tomorrow because I read the book. Um, And and Stella certainly inspired me to want to be a, a little bit better and a and a better writer, by the way. Do you have a favorite rejection letter? Because I, I I have one of my own that's that is a favorite. Do you have one that hit home or hurt home? <laughs> I I don't. I mean, to me, they all I'm very sympath, uh, empathetic and you know, sensitive kind of person. No one in particular stands out. One rejection stands out that made me feel a lot better. Um when someone explained to me, an agent explained to me that she actually loved my book, she loved my writing, she would love to represent me, but she already had someone who wrote something very, who wrote very similarly to what I write. That was a big aha moment for me, you know, probably would have helped you in the third grade basement, eating the little Mm -hmm. Debbie's or whatever. Like, oh, this is a business. These people don't just buy books based on whether they like them or not. They've got markets to serve. They've got holes. So once I realized it was not so personally about me, it was more, you know, business focused. I sort of, my my skin thickened and I, you know, soldiered on until I finally found the perfect agent. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I, um, I received some uh, some rejection letters as well. <laughs> One of them said uh, for Christmas jars, and I quote, I really love the concept. I just wish someone else had written it. <laughs> yeah. That's that was, classic. <laughs> that was a warm and fuzzy moment like I have never had before. Uh, oh, boy. Uh, um, I want to ask you our last two questions. Every guest on the show has gotten them, and the answers are always my favorite part of our discussion. So the first of the last is, you know the name of the podcast. It's right where you are, W-R-I-G-H-T. What does the name of that podcast mean to you? For me, it sort of has a double meaning. Um, the first meaning is sort of more literal. Literal. I'm thinking of W-R-I-T-E, like as a mom who wrote my first book as a full-time school teacher, a full-time mom, a full-time wife, Mm. a dog trainer, all these other things, right where you are literally meant to me, right wherever you are, Mm. whenever you have a few minutes. I would write in my minivan, sitting in the car line, waiting to pick my son up from school. If that was the only 10 or 12 minutes I had to write that day. So that that really jumps out at me right where you are for all the aspiring writers who are listening. You've just got to carve out little chunks of time and write where you are. No excuses, right? No excuses. I love it. 
but then it also um, being the, you know, softy, sympathetic, empathetic, it also has sort of an emotional pull to me also, the right where you are, because I have tried to write a lot, many different genres, Jason, and I've tried to write things because I thought they would sell because that's what the market wanted or that's what was popular at that time. And the only time I have ever had any success is when I wrote authentically from the place where I was emotionally at that time or from a place where I had been emotionally as a young adult or as a new wife or as a whatever. So for me, there are two meanings, right where you are, no excuses, right? But also, I said it earlier and I truly believe it. And it's one of the reasons why I love you know, the Christmas jars has stood with me all these years later because of the way it made me feel when I read it. Um, I think we have to write authentically from our real emotions if we're going to connect with readers. Mm. Amen, amen, amen. I feel like I want to mm-hmm. just rip out this little that little section and answer for the uh, for the aspiring writers out there. That was packed with some. Great advice. I think about, I have written on airplanes and trains and, um, oh boy, bus stations in New York at Penn Station waiting because the train was delayed. Um, I have written in um, a church meeting or two, uh, (laughs) hiding in the corner. Um, I haven't, and I have absolutely written in my my car um, while waiting for, for life to unfold. Great advice. All right. Well, Ms. McCall, you know, we like to think everyone will remember every word that we say, right? That this episode of this podcast will go down in history as being unforgettable for our listeners. The truth is probably not so, right? But mm-hmm. but you do, as a guest on Right Where You Are, have the opportunity to select the one thing. The one thing that you would most want your audience and my audience to remember about you, your career your journey in five or 10 or 20 or 30 or a hundred years from now, what is McCall's one thing? Ah, This is more personal than authorly, but I guess the one thing that I would want people to know a hundred years from now, and I hope I'm doing it with my students at school. And I hope I'm doing it with um, the two children that I have raised in my own home. I want kids who I have had a relationship with to know that someone loves them unconditionally. And I think that's really what Stella is about, learning to love herself unconditionally in spite of her mistakes. Um, I'll try to keep my story very brief, but I made some terrible decisions as a teenager. I'm sure you never did that, Jason. I'm sure you were a perfect angel. (laughs) My Um, listeners know otherwise. (laughs) But I made some horrible mistakes that um, teachers should have given up on me. My parents should have given up on me. And I came home late, late at night, one night. Um, My parents were furious. My mom's face was red. My dad was towering behind her. And my mom pointed her finger at me and she said, I am so mad at you. I just, oh, I don't even, she said, but there is nothing, there is nothing you can ever do that will make me stop loving you. 
And it's still to this day, I just said it and I got chills all over my body. I hope that a hundred years from now, somebody or somebody's child or grandchild or someone remembers something about the feeling of being unconditionally loved. They either remember it from one of my books or they remember it because I touched their life in some way. Mm. I mean, I cannot imagine being remembered um, in any better way than that. I had some, I uh, got some really good advice from a friend once who said I was I was doing some teaching as well at the time, and he said, you know, whether it's a religious or a secular kind of an environment, he said uh, kids are going to remember uh, just two really simple things about you: did you love God, and did you love them? And if they remember those two things, nothing else really matters in the end. Well, thank you for being that that kind of a soul. Um, thank you for writing a book uh, with the most wonderful, likable, lovable dog that you didn't even know until today <laughs> served as an inspiration for me, particularly during those hard editing days uh, on even the dog knows you just had no idea that I was um, using your book as almost my own little case study and white paper on, on what would work and what wouldn't um, between Stella and in my dog Moses and the book. So, so thank you for that. And thank you mostly for dedicating so much of your life to um, helping young people learn that there is, there is more to the world than, um, than their phone and their oh, Nintendo and their iPad and their television and their Netflix. So thank you for opening kids up to the wonderful world of reading. Again, folks, I will link to all of the wonderful things that she is doing in the world in the show notes. Make sure that you are following her. Pick up Stella. Don't make me find all of you and knock on your door and personally deliver a copy because I'm not above doing that. I mean, you have to pay for it, obviously. You have to obviously pay for it, but I would... I would personally deliver to you. No, I'm uh, I'm I'm ex- very excited to talk about a book that I have actually read and truly love. So again, the thanks to Shadow Mountain for making that possible and for helping to make today's interview possible as well. Troy, you're the best. We love you and we're we're thankful for you, friend. Please take a minute to rate and review the show on Audible, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, and we will see you again soon. McCall, thanks again. You are absolutely the best. This was the highlight of my week. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're a joy. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Right Where You Are. For more information about Jason and his projects, visit him online at jasonfright.com or on social media at facebook.com slash jfwbooks or on Instagram at jasonfright. And be sure to subscribe to Right Where You Are wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Right Media Productions. Copyright 2021 by Jason F. Wright. All rights reserved.